This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On this episode of Alert, we will be talking to Brent Patterson of the Council of Canadians on the occasion of that organization's 25th anniversary. We'll also be speaking with Elizabeth Komack, who presented at the recent Winnipeg Radical Book Fair alongside Nahani Fontaine on the subject of racialized policing. And finally, we'll be speaking with John Warnock, a Regina-based author, on Afghanistan nine years after the beginning of the war. Here are the alert headlines for the week of September 30th, 2010. Just as James Petrus predicted on alert last week, Venezuela's ruling United Socialist Party won a clear majority of seats in Monday's legislative elections, but fell just short of the 66 two-thirds it was seeking. Without the two-thirds majority, it will need to obtain legislative support from rival parties. Turnout was 66% high for a legislative election. Via Twitter, Venezuela President Hugo Chavez declared, It has been a great election day, and we have obtained a solid victory, enough to continue deepening democratic and Bolivarian socialism. We need to continue to strengthen the revolution. World leaders have expressed regret and disappointment after Israel announced it would not extend the 10-month moratorium on new settler homes in the West Bank. Israeli settlers resumed building across the West Bank on Monday after the partial freeze on construction expired. But there was widespread praise for Palestinians who held back on threats to quit peace talks over the move. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon reminded Israel on Monday that the building of settlements on occupied territory was illegal and said he was disappointed by the government's failure to extend its partial ban on further West Bank construction. European leaders were unanimous in their concern at the Israeli decision and warned that the Middle East peace talks could founder on the issue. The Obama administration has urged a federal judge to throw out a lawsuit challenging the administration's assertion that it can assassinate U.S. citizens anywhere in the world. Earlier this year, the Obama administration authorized the CIA to capture or kill Anwar al-Awlaki, an American-born cleric who is believed to be hiding in Yemen. With the help of the American Civil Liberties Union and Center for Constitutional Rights, al-Awlaki's father asked a federal judge to issue an injunction and force the administration to publicly reveal its criteria for determining who can be assassinated. The report of the fact-finding mission of the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights on the Israeli attack on the Gaza flotilla shows, for the first time, that U.S. citizen Furkan Dogan and five Turkish citizens were murdered execution-style by Israeli commandos. The report says Dogan had apparently been, quote, lying on the deck in a conscious or semi-conscious state for some time, unquote, before being shot at point-blank range. 
A military tribunal will begin today for the first of 12 U.S. soldiers accused of forming a secret kill team in Afghanistan that allegedly blew up and shot Afghan civilians at random and collected their fingers as trophies. The tribunal will decide whether Army Specialist Jeremy Morlock's case proceeds to court-martial. Morlock is charged with premeditated murder in the deaths of three Afghan civilians, assaulting a fellow soldier, and wrongfully photographing and possessing visual images of human casualties. The trials of Morlock and the other soldiers will likely be the most high-profile prosecutions of U.S. war crimes to result from the nearly nine-year-old conflict in Afghanistan. Fraud claims have prompted Afghanistan's Independent Election Commission to order a partial recount of votes from this month's parliamentary poll in seven of the country's 34 provinces. Electoral officials said on Monday that the recount may also be extended to other provinces. An election commissioner told news agency Reuters that the body also invalidated all votes cast in five polling stations in eastern coast province. The September 18th vote was marred by widespread fraud allegations, which are likely to delay the publication of final results. An aid ship carrying eight Jewish activists from Europe, Israel, and the U.S. is less than 24 hours from reaching Gaza. Ehud Barak, Israel's defense minister, has repeatedly warned that Israel will intercept any ship nearing Gaza. The 10-meter catamaran is tiny in comparison with the six-ship May 31st aid convoy that contained 10,000 tons of aid and over 700 activists. But the voyage is a gesture by Jewish groups to highlight what it sees as a flawed Israeli policy of collective punishment against 1.5 million Palestinians in Gaza. Ed Miliband is the new leader of the Labour Party after he rode a wave of support from trade union members to beat his brother David by the tightest of margins. Ed Miliband's victory was secured in the fourth round of a leadership contest after the elimination of all other candidates besides the Miliband brothers. David Miliband set out during the contest an overtly pro-business stance, refusing to commit to joining a trade union demonstration this autumn against public spending cuts. Meanwhile, Ed Miliband supports maintaining the banker's bonus tax, increasing the annual bank levy, and a new financial transactions tax. He also supports a living wage across Britain. And those have been your alert radio headlines for the week of September 30th, 2010. Coming up, Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of September 30th, 2010. On October 2nd, join Vancouver's 4th Annual March for Women's Housing and March Against Poverty. The group is marching for social housing, child care, and health care. No more evictions and no more condos in the downtown east side. And to stop criminalizing the poor. Meet at the downtown east side women's center in Vancouver at 2 o'clock p.m. Everyone welcome. This Thanksgiving weekend, support migrant workers and allies who will be marching from Leamington to Windsor to call attention to the living and working conditions of migrant workers who grow and process our food, especially for holidays of overconsumption like Thanksgiving. 
Migrant workers are marching to demand status, an end to exorbitant recruitment fees, better housing, safe working conditions, and an end to racism and sexism in the workplace. You can help by providing a donation, marching with the workers, or spreading the word of this march. To register as a demonstrator or to get more info, email pilgrimage to freedom at gmail.com. In 2006, members of the Haudenosaunee Nation blockaded a highway near Caledonia to prevent a housing development on land that falls within their traditional territories. The ensuing confrontation made national headlines for months, but less well known is the crucial role played by the clan mothers of the community, the traditional source of power in the Haudenosaunee Nation. The documentary Six Miles Deep is the compelling portrait of a group of women whose actions have led a cultural reawakening in their traditional matriarchal community. The film is being screened on October 7th at Beit Zatun in Toronto at 7.30, with a discussion to follow. This is a fundraiser for Defenders of the Land. Admission is pay what you can. Join the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly for a discussion about queer politics and social movements, the left and anti-capitalism. Meet in the back room of the Regal Beagle Pub in Toronto on October 8th at 7 o'clock p.m. Real Aid, True Solidarity, is an anti-war benefit for Afghanistan and Palestine featuring Malale Joya, former member of Afghanistan's parliament. With the Canadian government threatening to extend Canada's support of the occupation of Afghanistan beyond 2011, this evening is an important chance to hear directly from an Afghan woman about the war. Funds raised from this event will go to the Canadian Boat to Gaza and Malale Joya's Defence Committee, which provides financial support to a free medical clinic in Farah province in Afghanistan. The benefit is on October 12th at 7 at W2 in Vancouver. Email stopwar at resist.ca for more information. For 10 years, the revolutionary process in Venezuela has been an inspiration to the peoples of Latin America and the world. It is no surprise, then, that this process has been under heightened attacks in time for the September 26th national elections. International agencies are reportedly investing more than $40 million in the opposition to Chavez and his supporters. On October 3rd, come to an open discussion of the election results, the gains of Venezuela's revolutionary process, and the challenge it faces. Speakers include Raul Burbano, reporting back from Venezuela on the September 26th national elections, and Nicolas Lopez, who recently returned from visiting his Venezuelan homeland. The discussion is held at the Centre for Social Justice in Toronto and begins at 2 o'clock p.m. And that has been Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of September 30th, 2010. Coming up, Brent Patterson of the Council of Canadians. October 6th is the ninth anniversary of the first bombs dropped on Afghanistan by American forces in 2001. How did this war start? Why did it start? And how will it end? To answer these and other questions, including about Canada's involvement, we have on the phone from his home in Regina, John Warnock. He is the author of several books, including Creating a Failed State, the U.S. and Canada in Afghanistan. Hello, John Warnock, and Hello. welcome to Alert. Um, could you tell us, first of all, remind us again, exactly what was the official reason for going into Afghanistan uh, nine years ago? Well, it was a, uh, certainly a reaction to the uh, 9-11 events, uh, 
and it was pretty clear right from the beginning, and you can see this in Bob Woodward's book, which is quite good on this because he interviewed everybody involved, that the Bush administration had decided that the American people wanted revenge, and therefore it seems to me the most as you read Woodward's book and other accounts at that time, they were determined to uh, show force, you know, like they did in Iraq. And um, uh, so was it the, the idea that they were going there to get bin Laden and his friends, et cetera, I don't think that was all that serious. It, it was There was this other thing, I believe. So what was the real rationale, in your opinion, for going to Afghanistan? Well... The United States has been involved deeply in Afghanistan since the early 1970s when they started to, to finance and support the radical Islamists and uh, to oppose the left-wing government in Afghanistan. Then afterwards, the, uh, the Russian occupation of Afghanistan to defend the, the regime there. And they've never given that up. And uh, I think they re- well. Um, I think the important thing is uh, 1980, where Jimmy Carter issued the Carter Doctrine, saying that the United States was use all military force it needed to defend its oil interests in the Middle East, and he did this right after the occupation of Afghanistan by the, the Russians and then the overthrow of the government in in Iran, you know. And so, right from day one, the Amer- and then uh, Ronald Reagan's government expanded on that, and the the Americans have been there since then. In a big way, and then when the Caspian Sea oil developed, uh, there's a major struggle still going on now between the United States, Russia, and and China over that oil and who's going to control it. You know, and so I think uh, the bottom line that's why the Americans are staying in there for a long time. They do not want to pull out because they have their own geopolitical interests there. Could you maybe explain a little bit more detail about those geostrategic interests? Uh, I, I mean, Afghanistan, for example, doesn't have oil the way Iraq has oil. So uh, what would be the uh, the main incentive as far as uh, the United States' uh, in- interests are concerned? Well, their, their interest is, one, to uh, isolate and surround Russia and try to roll back Russian influence in the former uh, satellite countries. That, that's one of their goals. The other goal is to isolate Iran and keep Iranian oil from going to Europe. And uh, um, so one of the, the proposals in the, in, from um, some of the 1980s and certainly into early 1990s was to build the pipelines from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan uh, to the Arabian Sea. And that certainly has been uh, a continuing policy in the United States. They even supported the uh, Taliban when they got in power, believing that the Taliban could create law and order and they could build a pipeline. And therefore, the oil from the Caspian Sea would go out to the West instead of to Europe or through Russia or Iran. Okay, so... um what is uh, I mean, Canada is involved in this as well. I mean, how are they? Uh, what is their incentive in being involved in this? I mean, well, um, of course, they they were among the first countries to support the United States after the nine eleven events and pledged their full support uh, in that matter. Um, so, uh, some people say, well, Canada has business interests there, et cetera. 
That's true, but I think overwhelmingly the most important thing is you read all the inside stories that are out is that they wanted to show their loyalty to the United States, that they are part of the Anglo-American alliance and a loyal partner along with New Zealand and Australia and Great Britain. And so I would say the political, ideological, and cultural identities were more important than any Canadian economic interests that some businessmen might have in Central Asia. Okay, and you you mentioned before um, about uh, a possibility uh, that they're talking about a, a pipeline going through that uh, region. Has there been any development in that regard? Or well, that pipeline the- is still on the books, and it's been negotiated. Karzai has negotiated it, but they can't build a pipeline because uh, the resistance to Karzai's regime and the NATO presence there has been increasing over the last two or three years. It hasn't been declining. And so the, uh, it's not likely that that pipeline is going to be built for a long time. But the Americans uh, are, in spite of what uh, <laughs> President uh, Obama says about pulling out in a year or so, this year's budget includes $1.3 billion for building additional military bases in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is emerging as a puppet state of the United States and Central Asia, uh, and the United States, in my opinion, has no intention of uh, pulling out there. They're building up their bases. They're increasing their soldiers. Okay, so you're you're talking about the uh, establishment of Afghanistan as a kind of puppet state with uh, military bases being uh, left there. Uh, could you maybe, in that contest, uh, context, explain to us about the realistic... Uh, the realism of uh, a 2011, a real pullout in 2011. Well, I don't, I don't think a pullout is possible uh, for NATO. The whole regime would just totally collapse. In fact, uh, the Afghanistan government uh, re- relies almost 100% on aid from the NATO and other allied countries to uh, provide its budget for operation. And its, mil- its whole military and everything is paid for by the U.S. government. You know, so it is not a viable state. And uh, the N- United States, Canada, and NATO had also done everything they can to block the development of democracy in, in, in the country by refusing to allow their original constitution to go back They hold elections, but they don't allow any political parties to form or participate in the election. They prefer the system where you have Karzai in there with this all-powerful presidency, where he can even appoint all the mayors and all the uh, provincial governors. And balancing off that are these uh, ethnic uh, warlords, as they're commonly referred to. And those people were all allies in the United States during the... uh, Civil War when the Soviet Union was there, and uh, so the, the 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 government structure there is set up for by the United States with the strong support of the Canadian government, you know, to create a government that can't work. You know, it's it's not dem- democratic. They're afraid of the rise of the Democratic Party because the Democratic parties uh, want to move beyond this. They want to get the, all the foreigners out and run the show themselves. You know, and so uh, they have no influence. They've not been able to do anything uh, under the occupation by NATO. So uh, I know that some of the uh, the people who support the Afghan mission saying that uh, we need to have troops there to in order to provide security for the Afghan population and the women and so forth. Yeah. And if you're arguing that uh, you know if if 
troops are there and are an obstacle to democracy? Is it kind of like a choice between democracy and security? Or do you what even... would happen if the NATO pulled out? Now, I think all the polls that have showed, regardless of how bad or good they are, all the polls in Afghanistan show 65% or more of the people don't want the Taliban back. You know, and uh, so um, the progressives there are calling for the withdrawal of, of uh, NATO, and they think that the Taliban uh, and the other rebels that are t- attached to them will disappear after the, what NATO pulls out, because their real support is the of um, uh, you know, of the Taliban and the resistance is against the foreign occupation. And if you remember back, if we can remember back when the Russians pulled out, when the Russians pulled out, everybody said, well, the regime, the, the leftist regime will collapse in a month. It stayed in there for three years because the Mujahideen rebellion was against the Russians. As soon as the Russians came pulled out, they just quit. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so the leftist regime stayed in there for three years and didn't collapse until the Soviet Union collapsed and their, all their money was cut off. You know, and I think a similar thing would happen now if the NATO countries pulled out that the Taliban not being popular, would uh, lose its influence. And you would see the revival, I think, of uh, Mm -hmm. the political party system, which they had in the 60s and 70s. Well, as you mentioned, uh, Russia did eventually pull out. And so my final question to you, Mr. Warnock, is will Canada and the United States leave? Well, I think Canada is sort of committed to pulling a lot, most of their troops out. They may keep a lot of them there for some kind of support and training activities, but uh, there's enormous pressure in Canada now to keep the Canadian troops there from the people at the top and business interests and political interests and so on. But this is one thing the Harper government seems to be committed to is uh, he's going to pull the troops out. I don't know why he decided this, (laughs) but we'll see. Okay. Well, of course, uh, we'll see how this develops, and uh, I want to thank you, Mr. Warnock, for joining us today on Alert Radio. Okay. And uh, this is uh, Alert Radio, and I am here with Elizabeth Komack. She is the head of the Department of Sociology at the University of Manitoba and research associate with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. She's co-presenting with Nahani Fontaine at the Winnipeg Radical Book Fair uh, on the weekend uh, on the topic of racialized policing. So, Elizabeth, welcome to Alert. Could you... Uh, possibly explain exactly what you mean when you use that term of racialized policing? Uh, Racialized as in, um, uh, I mean, what what we're focusing on in particular is the experiences that Aboriginal peoples have had with the police. And uh, we were interested in finding out from uh, those that we interviewed uh, not just what those experiences had been, both positive and negative, but also whether they thought that it was because they were Aboriginal that they were being uh, targeted by police. So in that sense, the ways in which uh, race plays out in policing practices. And um, you've interviewed uh, about several dozen uh, Aboriginal people over the course of your research, and uh, what have you been what are your conclusions at this point? Well, it's interesting. When we, when we first started this project, um, and it was two years ago, we thought, well, 
because uh, there's lots of stories out there. Uh, Nahani had heard a lot of stories in the work that she does as the Justice Director for Southern Chiefs Organization. I'd heard lots of stories um, in various projects that I'd been doing. So we wanted to bring the stories together into a collective narrative. And we thought, well, if we could get 30 interviews with people to you know, elaborate on what their experiences had been, that would be good. Well, we ended up stopping at 78. More and more people kept coming forward wanting to tell their experiences. Yes, and um, so uh, what? what's the general, is there a general pattern to any of these stories? Uh, maybe one uh, story in particular that stands out in your mind? Well, there's, lo- there's lots of stories that do stand out, and I guess there's two practices that, um, that came out that uh, surprised me in terms of the regularity with which we were hearing these stories. One had to do with the, what's been called starlight tours. Uh, people telling experiences of being picked up by the police and driven to the outskirts of the city and dropped off. The police will say to them, oh, we're taking you for a joy ride, um, um, we're going to give you some time to think about this, and, and drop them off sometimes in the middle of winter to make their way back home. And this That's is, illegal, by the way. Yeah, and, and this is exclusively dealing with Aboriginal peoples. That's who we've, we've interviewed, so that's who I could speak to. Okay, yeah. and... and- Oh, sorry. Yeah, and uh, uh, there's other kinds of um, um, practices that that people talked about on a fairly regular basis, um, and, and I guess this notion that you fit the description, that being stopped regularly, and for some men, this means being stopped two, three times a month on a on a regular basis, and asked to account for themselves because they fit the description. One of the guys that I interviewed uh, had that experience uh, just not long before I had interviewed him and and he said to the officer he he said like why are you stopping me you know he, they picked him up they took him to the police station to question him and and the police officer said well you fit the description and he said well take a look at me man <laughs> I'm I'm aboriginal I'm wearing jeans and a white t-shirt I got a ponytail like I fit the description of like most people in my neighborhood you know get a hold of yourself he says so it's like the the entire neighborhood is essentially being racialized, right? Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting, too, is not only are people being racialized, but spaces are being racialized. And when we tend to, when we think of racialization, we think of it as only applying, for instance, to the North End being a racialized space. Tuxedo's also a racialized space, but in the opposite context. It's a white space. And so we interviewed several people who talked about being stopped by police when they're out in the tuxedo area and asked to account for themselves. What are you doing here? Well, I'm visiting a cousin. Well, you can't have a cousin that lives out here. So it's interesting how those notions play out. Hmm. Now, we, we do have a police oversight body here. It's the, uh, the Law Enforcement Review Agency. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when there are instances where police are abusing their authority, and that seems to be what you're describing here, um, how is it uh, being addressed? Or is it being addressed? Well, several people that I interviewed, I would ask them, well, uh, when, when an incident occurred that they had told me about, I would say, well, did you report this? Did you make a complaint? And typically the response that they would give me is, uh, and this is their perception, why would I tell the police about the police? <laughs> that they they, uh, they don't see Lyra as being... Um, uh, uh, more of an objective third party. They they see it as, as being too connected to the police. The other reason why they wouldn't uh, complain is they would say, well, but, you know, other police officers who were there are only going to back up what 
this police officer says happened. So what chance do I have? Hmm. And oftentimes their lawyers would tell them, well, just plead guilty. Like you don't, you don't really have much of a chance here. Well, and uh, so it's based, yeah, they plead, like you say, the police watching themselves. Um, do you have any, maybe, uh, like, are you knowledgeable about, I mean, there is a, a paper trail there, nevertheless. So, I mean, how many, uh, uh, would you say that the people that who do report to Lyra, is there a, you, the, the majority of them, uh, are they just not dealt with then? Um, well, and the, they may not proceed for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. but looking at the data that's available, uh, from Lyra, that it, not a lot of those um, complaints go very far. Mm. Now, uh, we have a civic election on right now in Winnipeg where we have uh, politicians seem to, seeming to scramble to want to address the problem of crime and crime control. And so we, we you know, the mayor's proposal, we have to have more police on the streets, we got to give them more resources, a helicopter. Uh, now, given your research and, and the stories you've heard, what impact would you project that that kind of approach is going to have long term in terms of addressing not only the problems of crime but uh, this dynamic that's playing out between uh, aboriginals and police i don't know that it's well i don't know that it's uh so much a problem of of not having enough police officers on the street what came out of the interviews that we did is that there was a deep disconnect there's a deep divide between a lot of inner city communities, a lot of folks and the police service, there's a, a there's a, a what people call, to their mind, a lack of respect. That why do they have to treat us that way? Came up very regularly, and I th- I think probably if you interview police officers, you get the same story. Why do people have to treat us that way? So that there's this, there's this disconnect. There's a, a divide between. Uh, um, the, the police officers in the community that they're there to serve. Lots of people in the inner city quite welcome a police presence, but it's a particular kind of police presence that they want. I mean, more of a community-based policing. Um, but this notion that everybody's suspect because they fit the de- description, um, you know, operating on the basis of those kinds of racialized constructions, I think is really problematic. And it so there's a real issue there that I don't think simply putting more police officers on the streets is going to solve. Uh, do you have any uh, potential remedies uh, that uh, you would prefer to sort of uh, throw out there that uh, maybe politicians should be picking up on and putting in place? I th- well, I, I know that the Winnipeg Police Service has done a lot over the last several years in terms of policing practices, but I think there's much more that could could be done. I from what I've been told from the people we've interviewed, there's some pretty nasty police officers out there who've done some pretty nasty things. And I think the police service knows who they are. So the police also need to police themselves. There's lots of good cops out there, and I, I, I would certainly support that notion. There's lots of good cops who really care about the work they do and do it with care and with respect and treat people with dignity. But they also need to deal with the guys who are not doing the job that way. Okay. And uh, should, should we be bringing in a, a different oversight body, replacing or reforming Lyra? Well, with the, the reforms to the Police Act, I mean, you know, that I think has um, in, put in place a, a different kinds of process. It uh, probably wouldn't hurt to take a closer look at, at Lyra, but I think 
part part of what needs to be addressed is uh, the public faith in the police and and that issue of respect on both sides. Okay. Well, Elizabeth Komack, I want to thank you very much for uh, uh, talking on, on this subject and Thanks all very the best much, in the uh, Winnipeg Radical Book Fair this uh, coming weekend. I think uh, Nahani and I are on at one thirty on Sunday. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Elizabeth Komack speaking with us recently on the subject of her recent research on racialized policing. We're speaking with Brent Patterson. Brent Patterson is Campaigns Director for the Council of Canadians, an organization that has now been in existence for 25 years. And we're going to be speaking to Brent about that anniversary and uh, a little bit about the Council of Canadians and uh, its trajectory over the last 25 years. So, Brent, welcome to Alert Radio. Thank you very much, Michael. Now, this is the the 25th anniversary of the Council of Canadians coming up. Could you maybe remind us, what are some of the major campaigns that uh, the Council of Canadians has pursued in its 25-year history? Gosh, well, there's been certainly uh, a lot of them. We were founded on the fight against the first uh, free trade agreement uh, between Canada and, and the United States, and... Part of the early history of the Council, too, was, was our opposition to the North American Free Trade Agreement. And that, that's been work that's been constant, really, through the whole 25 years of, of, of the Council in terms of um, pointing to the, you know, the anti-democratic nature of, of these uh, and other uh, trade agreements. And even though both of those agreements uh, passed or came came into effect. We've we've continued to highlight um, some of the issues about how it endangers our water, the the Chapter 11 aspect of 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 NAFTA that allows corporations to sue uh, government uh, directly when their profits are 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 um, you know hindered in any way by important uh, public interest legislation. We've there was a multilateral agreement on investment that we helped to. To defeat, so certainly lots of work in the in the trade uh, uh, area, but many many campaigns over the years. We we were um, we fought against bank mergers a dozen years ago, probably uh, worked uh, against the um, Walmart coming into to Canada. So I mean, some of these campaigns certainly we didn't win; others we 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 have, and 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 certainly some some significant wins over the years. What would you say has been the major obstacle to uh, success uh, for the council? I mean, you mentioned the free trade agreement, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, ultimately prevailed. What would you say is the main obstacle or even the main rival to the uh, uh, being able to champion these sorts of concerns? And, and how might the council go about trying to overcome them? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think what we have found um, over the years, certainly when we've done public opinion polling, that that um, on on the issues of concern that we've brought uh, forward, we we always have very strong support from 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 the uh, you know from the general public. So, you know, on any any sort of our main demands, we'll have eighty or ninety percent even support from the public to say this is what 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 should be done and this is what is is right um, you know it's 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 a different thing though of course with with uh, you know most all I guess the government's 
federal government certainly that we've faced over these these years that that um, you know have to play politics I guess but will often respond more so to the demands of 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 you know various corporations or or I guess initially the Business Council on National Issues and then the Canadian Council of, of Chief Executives and so they're you know they're answering to a different authority often than than people so we know that we have the support of, of the public and can often mobilize them uh, uh, very well and and have been able to, to you know to you to do that and 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 win mm-hmm. but Oftentimes, you know, corporations won't have popular support, but they have, they have money and they have uh, spin, and 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 there's a relationship there between the political leaders and, um, and 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 corporations, and they can sort of push on through. And then, really, often the time too, in terms of big uh, media uh, in Canada, they will either not report on the stories or will report on it in a in a biased way and and that's probably, you know, some of the biggest obstacles uh, that that we have in terms of the people are on side, but sometimes yet you we, know, that isn't enough. Yet we have had, in spite of those obstacles that you mentioned, uh, there have been uh, a victory or two, have there not? Well, you mentioned the, the MAI, the multiple. Yes, multiple. well, I tell you, we uh, if people go to our, our website, you know, www.canadians.org, we have a wins section where we mm-hmm. where we list um, all of our wins, big and small, uh, over over the years, and some are are our national wins, international wins even, uh, and some are you know just as important, but at the at the local level in communities across the country, wins secured by okay. by uh, chapters, and and so definitely lots of wins there. Uh, we have the historic. Win this past July at the United Nations uh, in terms of a of a resolution being passed uh, in the General Assembly recognizing um, the right to water and sanitation, and that was a a big win, and we were very much a part of that. Um, and and um, and much work needs to be done on that, but certainly that was important. And I might just mention as well, we're very proud of 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 a of a win just recently in terms of of um, this thing called Site 41, this plan to build a garbage dump uh, on top of, of an aquifer, an underground water source measured to be the cleanest uh, water uh, in the world. And, and so we were a part of a very important community-based uh, campaign, a campaign that involved uh, Indigenous peoples and farmers and local people and, and other national organizations and uh, international organizations too to stop this, and really, overall, that that actually probably was a 25-year uh, fight, and we came in uh, near the end of it, but but played an important. There's another important, uh, you know. major fight that's been underway, and that's uh, the fight against uh, climate change or, or climate justice. I mean, mm-hmm. you want to talk try to talk about uh, where the council is headed on, on that front? Sure. Well, we. Um, we uh, are certainly uh, advocating for climate justice and see ourselves as a part of the climate justice movement. And um, and certainly on the international side, we were at the uh, climate summit in, in in Copenhagen, where a very weak, non-binding accord came came out of that. Uh, I think significantly for us, we were also at a kind of an alternative people's 
summit in in Bolivia this past April, uh, where I think really in many ways the climate justice movement uh, came together and articulated, um, you know, a vision of climate justice and and the responsibility around climate uh, financing, climate debt, our climate debt obligations, and about serious um, emission um, reductions uh, that that the global north, uh, you know, must must pursue, and so. We're trying to take that message across the country, but also taking it to Cancun this November, December for the next um, uh, big climate summit yeah. and, and, and continue to push on that. And, of course, sorely uh, disappointed about the, the role, the position that the Harper government has taken on, on, on climate change, which has been basically to pr- continue to promote the tar sands and to, um, to negate uh, its obligations under the Kyoto Accord and basically kind of try and fool people that that they're serious about um, reducing emissions, but, but you know, in fact, aren't. Brent, quickly, um, is there any, uh, with the 25th anniversary uh, coming, with the annual general meeting coming up in Ottawa, is there any new campaign that the uh, Council of Canadians is uh, focusing on currently? Well, that's a good point. I think really, you know, the big campaigns right now are around the Canada-European Union Free Trade Agreement, um, fighting against the Schedule Two. this exemption that allows mining corporations to dump their waste into freshwater uh, lakes and and um, and calling for a moratorium on offshore oil and gas drilling in the Arctic. That's actually the Arctic one is probably the new campaign, but some, some exciting work coming up. Well, on that note, I want to thank you very much, Brent Patterson, for um, joining us here on Alert Radio. Thank you very much, Michael. And that was Brent Patterson, uh, the campaign's director for the Council of Canadians on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the Council of Canadians' founding. Hi, this is Mitch Benoit. This is Music is the Weapon. And today's show is about heroes, mostly about labor heroes, mostly about heroic situations and heroic things that don't look heroic necessarily. But we, I've grown up in a situation where labor heroes were my heroes, and I want to share them with you. So here is James Keelahan with My Old Man. My old man was a good old man, skilled in the molding trade. In the stinking heat of the iron foundry, my old man was made. Down on his knees in the molding sand, he wore his trade like a company brand. He was one of Cyclops' smoky band, yes that was my old man. My old man wasn't really old It was just that I was young And anyone or twelve years old Was halfway to the tomb He was loyal to his workmates all his life Gave over his pay pack to his wife Would have a few jars on a Saturday night Yes, that was my old man My old man was a union man 
worked hard all his days. He understood the system and was wise to the boss's ways. He said, if you want what's yours by right, you'll have to struggle with all your might. They'll rob you blind. If you don't fight them, that was my old man. My old man was a proud old man, at home on the foundry floor. Until the day they laid him off and showed him out the door. They gave him his card, said times are slack We found a machine that has the knack Of doing your job, so don't come back The end of my old man My old man was 51 And what was he to do? Molding craftsmen on the dole in 1952 He felt he'd give it all he could give So he did what thousands of others did He abandoned hope and the will to live It killed him, my old man Now my old man dead and gone and I am your old man and my advice to you my child is to fight back while you can beware the man with the silicon chip hold on to your job with a good firm grip cause if you don't you've cashed your chips the same as my old man cause if you don't You've cashed your chips the same as my old man. That was James Keohan singing the wonderful My Old Man. Next, we're going to hear Charlie King sing a great song about a fantastic woman from El Salvador who came to Los Angeles and began to be a fighter for everybody's rights. Here is Yanira Marine. They laugh and they tell us the unions are dead. Now it's every man for himself. Well, here in LA, there's a new union made. I tell you, folks, she's something else. Her name is Yanira, a daring Latina. She knows her strength and her worth She's younger but wiser A born organizer The kind we call salt of the earth Hey, Yanira I just want to sing your name Yanira Daughter of El Salvador Yanira Nothing ever will be the same. Viva Yanira Merino. They had murdered her lover for speaking his mind. She ran north across Mexico. 
The death squad pursued her and did some things to her I don't think that you'd want to know But her spirit's unbroken, she's brave and outspoken A steady, unquenchable flame And she brought that fire to the sweatshop that hired her They'll never forget her name, it's Yanni I just want to sing your name Yaniva, daughter of El Salvador Yaniva, nothing ever will be the same Yaniva, Yaniva, Merino Twenty-seven years old Two kids and no job She hires on at a shrimp packing plant Where the boss, he was rude The foreman was lewd The perks and the wages were scant But her bright smile would shine To her friends on the line How long, good people, how long They can pull any crime on us One at a time But in union, we are strong Meeting outside the packing house wall Then the five each brought four To show up at the door Of the laborers' union hall Twenty-five takes the game If they each take three names To sign up for a fight they can win Oh, it snowballed in time Till at last, eighty-nine voted yes The union was in Hey, Yagi To sing your name, Nadiva, Yanira, Merino. Yanira is not packing shrimp anymore. She's packing the union hall. There is nobody braver for immigrant labor. The immigrant stands for us all. So to hell with a law that would padlock the door Tell me which side are you on? I couldn't be clearer Let's side with Yanira And the courage to carry it on Hey, Yanira I just want to sing your name Yanira, daughter of El Salvador
story come and listen to my song I will tell you of a hero who's now dead and gone I will tell you of a young boy whose age was 19 he was the bravest union man that I have ever seen Harry Sims was a pal of mine, we labored side by side. 
Expecting to be shot on sight or taken for a ride By them dirty coal operator gun thugs that roam from town to town A shooting down the union men where'er they may be found Harry Sims was walking down the track one bright sunshiny day He was a youth of courage, his step was light and gay He did not know the gun thugs was hiding on the way To kill our brave young comrade this bright sunshiny day Harry Sims was killed on Brush Creek in 1932. He organized the miners into the NMU. He gave his life in struggle, that was all that he could do. He died for the Union, also for me and you. That was Pete Seeger singing the death of Harry Sims. You know, the capitalist class kills people all the time. And that's it for this week, folks. Take care. Solidarity. See you next week. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here the same time next week. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Gonick. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Seven Days Around the Left was prepared by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Michael Welch. And I'm Ashley Titterton. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine.